Our gospel lesson this morning is found in John chapter 6. We're going to be picking up in verse 25. When they found him on the other side of the sea, they said to him, Rabbi, when did you come here? Jesus answered them, truly, truly, I say to you, you are seeking me, not because you saw signs, but because you ate your fill of the loaves. Do not work for the food that perishes, but for the food that endures to eternal life, which is the Son of Man will give to you. For on him God the Father has set his seal. Then they said to him, what must we do to be doing the works of God? Jesus answered them, this is the work of God, that you believe in him whom he sent. So they said to him, then what sign do you do that we may see and believe you? What work do you perform? Our fathers ate the manna in the wilderness, as it is written, he gave them bread from heaven to eat. Jesus said to them, truly, truly, I say to you, it was not Moses who gave you the bread from heaven, but my father gives you the true bread from heaven. For the bread of God is he who comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. So they said to him, sir, give us this bread always. Jesus said to them, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger, and whoever believes in me shall never thirst. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we do give you thanks that you give us bread from heaven, your Son, Jesus Christ. We ask this morning that you would teach us in him, lead us into your truth, and open our eyes that we may see wonderful things in this portion of your scriptures. We ask in Jesus' name, amen. Over the last months, we, or over the last month, we've been walking through a series on spiritual worship in the Psalms, discussing the dynamics of worship and what it means to truly commune with God in worship. We've seen that a vital, lively communion with God occurs on, in two overlapping spheres. The first is the corporate sphere, where we gather week by week with God's people to offer ourselves to God in praise and thanksgiving. And then the second is the private sphere, where we give ourselves to God as living sacrifices day by day in a life of worship. And these spheres overlap one another. But all too often, rather than experiencing life-giving communion with the living God, we find ourselves discontent in the spiritually dry and weary deserts of life. I found myself in a season like that my sophomore year of college. I was heavily involved in the college ministry that was on the campus of our university, and I had just come off of a seven-week summer project. If any of y'all uh, have been on something like that, you know these projects are designed to be spiritual greenhouses where you grow and flourish very rapidly, very quickly. Over those seven weeks that summer, I had, I had been given tools to study the Bible. I had learned a paradigm for studying the Bible. I learned how to share my faith by being thrown into the fires of beach evangelism. Yes, beach evangelism, a hundred college students walking the beach, sharing their faith, and I was one of them. I learned, uh, I'd, I'd sat through seminars on the church, 
heard about theology and sat through a weekend on relationships. And I came back to the campus of Georgia College State University, school so nice they named it twice. I came back that fall ready to put all of these new tools to work, this new training that I had received. I was excited about sharing my faith, sometimes even skipping classes, hoping to lead guys to faith in Jesus. I studied my Bible in morning quiet times, what we called our dog, which is really easy for me to uh, remember because I love the dogs. D-A-W-G, daily appointments with God. That's what we called them. I led a small guys discipleship group. I attended every Tuesday evening large group and I went to every Sunday evening leadership meeting where we studied spiritual gifts and spiritual leadership. And even though I was giving myself to all of these good things, all of these good activities, I began to feel dry and weary. Like there was a longing in my soul that couldn't be satisfied with all of this activity. I was no longer in the spiritual greenhouses of the summer project. I was now in the spiritual outhouse, feeling dry and weary in a spiritual wasteland. And here in Psalm 63, David finds himself in a desert. The title says, when he was in the wilderness of Judah. And this physical wilderness has become a metaphor for his spiritual life. David says, O God, you are my God. Earnestly I seek you. My soul thirsts for you. My flesh faints for you as in a dry and weary land where there is no water. And David says that the longings of his soul will be satisfied as with fat and rich food. You see, David had discovered something that I had not yet learned. What I was seeking was contentment through activity for God. But David had learned that contentment is sought not through activity for God, but through communion with God. What we see in Psalm 63 is that the satisfied life is a life lived with God. So what shape does worship take in Psalm 63? What shape does this life take, a life with God? This morning we're going to look at three exercises of a life lived with God that David employs. He first praises God in verses 1 through 4. Then he reflects on God in verses 5 through 8. And then lastly, he expects something from God in verses 9 through 11. So the first exercise of a life with God that's employed in Psalm 63 is the praise of God. Notice what David says in verses 2 through 4 after he's confessed his hunger and his thirst. He says, so I have looked upon you in the sanctuary, beholding your power and glory Because your steadfast love is better than life, my lips will praise you. I will bless you as long as I live. In your name, I will lift up my hands. For David, praise began in the sanctuary, in the assembly of God's people, and then it moved into the various domains of his life. He says that he previously in the past beheld God's power and his glory in the assembly of God's people. And now in the wilderness of Judah, David will praise with his lips. He will lift up his hands in in prayer. 
But why is praise the natural response to witnessing God's power and glory in the sanctuary? Why praise? I was listening to This American Life with Ira Glass a few years ago. Uh, and, And years prior to this episode, Ira had lost his mother. And he recalls sitting in a synagogue on the anniversary of his mother's death, and he's praying all the prayers. He's singing the songs that are offered. And though he's a committed atheist, he begins to reflect on praise. And he says this, you know, it really hit me sitting there. What does God get out of that? What does he get out of us sitting there telling him how great he is for 45 minutes a day? Is, it, is he really that needy? Like if some parent demanded that their kid praise them for 45 minutes a day every day, we would know they're nuts. What does God care if you love him? Now this is a thoughtful question. It's actually a question that's asked by lots of skeptics of God's, uh, of God. But Ira misses the whole point of a life of praise. God doesn't need your praise. He doesn't need it. You need your praise. You need to praise God because you were designed to glorify. You were designed to worship something. And you will give your praise to something or to someone. So the question is, who will you praise? You were designed for a life of praise, glorifying God and enjoying him forever. And one of the exercises of life with God, of true communion with God, is the exercise of praise. And David's praise is motivated by the steadfast love of God, which to David is better than life, he says in verse 3, better than all the prospects of prosperity and provision. And this phrase, steadfast love, is the Old Testament's favorite way of describing God's character. It describes his faithfulness to his promises, of his commitment to the flourishing of his people. God is unswerving. He's steadfast in his love for you. He's unswerving in his commitment to bring about the restoration of your soul and of your life. Unswerving in his commitment to make good on his promises to you. And so David naturally praises. It's God's steadfast love that elicits his praise. And just as for David, it began in the sanctuary, so too for for us. It begins here. It begins on Sunday mornings when we are trained, formed in a life of praise. It's here in the assembly of God's people where we witness God's power and glory through liturgy and song, where we are convinced of his steadfast love for us in his son Jesus through confession and assurance, and we discover satisfaction through a life with God. So David engages in the exercise of praise, and so do we. Along with praise in verses 5 through 8, the satisfied life with God employs the spiritual exercise of reflecting on God. Look with me at these verses. He says, my soul will be satisfied as with fat and rich food, and my mouth will praise you with joyful lips. When I remember you upon my bed and meditate on you in the watches of the night. Why? For you have been my help. And in the shadow of your wings, I will sing for joy. My soul clings to you. Your right hand upholds me. 
David employs the art of meditation and reflection. Now, he's not talking about a kind of a monastic meditation where you go off to a monastery on the side of a mountain and live in silence and solitude, as cool as that might be for some of us. David is reflecting on God when he's lying awake awake in the watches of the night, remembering God upon his bed. These are those moments when the desires and the anxieties of life have free reign to come flooding into our memory, where our minds can wander with freedom unhindered by the duties of our day. Has that happened to you? If you're anything like me, it happens more often than you'd like. Have you found yourself struggling to fall asleep because your mind won't stop racing? Have you ever woken up in the middle of the night with anxious thoughts and laid there for hours pondering a myriad of decisions and indecisions? David says that it's in those anxious moments that he's intentional with his thoughts. He's intentionally giving his attention to God. I think we often forget the power of thought, of mulling over things in our mind. Christian psychiatrist Kurt Thompson in his book, The Soul of Shame, reminds us of the importance of thoughts. He talks about this a lot, about giving our attention to things. He says, to have one's mind set on something is essentially about paying attention. What do you pay attention to? Paul says that what we pay attention to doubles back and it governs us. Hence, our attention is deeply associated with either death or life. So much of the biblical narrative in the story is the story of God working hard to get our attention. Then he goes on and says, paying attention is very hard work. Most of what brings people into my office is a function of the degree to which they do not pay attention to much of what their mind is doing. And so what are we giving our attention to? When we talk about reflecting on God, we're not talking about thinking about God every minute of every day. But what are the priorities of your mind? What are you giving your thoughts to? God knows that you have things to give your time and attention to. But do you ponder him? Do you ponder his works in Jesus? Do you ponder the ways in which he has freely given you his grace? But y'all, I'm not going to stand here and act like that's just an easy thing to do. It's not easy popping out of bed in the morning and thinking about God's fatherly provision when you've got kids to get out to school, right? It's, It's not easy to meditate on God's kindness at night on your bed as you've just finished a fight with your spouse or when you've been criticized at work for something that you've given hours of your day to. It's not easy to think about God's goodness when when you've been woken up in the middle of the night by a screaming baby and you have to change a diaper and wipe a bottom. It's not easy. It is not easy. But it is worth it. What are you reflecting on? Are you reflecting on his goodness and his care and provision for you? What are you mulling over in your mind throughout the day? What are the ruminations of your thoughts? Is it God or is it something less than God? Because what you meditate on will eventually govern you. It will rule you. And you will give your life to it. 
And if we're going to have a contented life with the living God, we have to give ourselves, the, we, we have to give our attention to him, not just on Sunday mornings, right? We have a couple of hours here together, right? Thinking about God, thinking about his ways and his works in Jesus. But that is meant also to fuel your attention throughout the week, giving your time and energy to God, reflecting on his works and ways in Jesus. And then lastly, praise and reflection give way to the final spiritual exercise employed in Psalm 63, expectation. David expects something from God in verses 9 through 11. But those who seek to destroy my life shall go down to the depths of the earth. They shall be given over to the power of the sword. They shall be a portion for jackals. And the king shall rejoice in God. All who swear by him shall exult, for the mouths of liars will be stopped. Now, at first glance, the, these final verses seem a bit disjointed. Uh, when I was reading through it, I was struck by the, what, what feels like a hard shift from, uh, the, from David exclaiming God's, uh, God's goodness and his love exclaiming his devotion to God in verses one through eight, and then making a hard shift to these final verses. Those who seek to destroy my life shall go down to the depths of the earth. How do these final verses fit? This expectation of the overthrow of evil, what's their place in our life with God? One commentator answers this question by pointing to the prophetic nature of these Psalms in which he says, the destruction of the godless, the wicked, the enemies of God and of his people is demanded and prayed for. As David was victorious over all his enemies, so will the king, the coming king, be victorious over all the enemies. So what we see in these final verses is that a life with God has a future dimension to it, a forward-looking nature to it, we praise and we reflect. We also expect a bright tomorrow. We expect the flood of God's grace and goodness to overwhelm the forces of evil in our world. We expect that Jesus will have his victory and all will be well in the world once again. You see, a life with God expects God to overthrow evil, to give it over to the sword, to make it a portion for jackals, as he says. So forceful will the victory of Jesus be that all who swear by the king will exult. There won't even be a, rem a memory of evil in our world. And that is our expectant hope. That's how we train ourselves in hope, is by looking forward to the victory of the king. Now, I've been re-watching the Lord of the Rings trilogy uh, over the last uh, few days and weeks, uh, ahead of the new Amazon series, The Rings of Power. I was struck by something in the final movie, movie The Return of the King. Uh, on the eve of the final battle, uh, when all the, the forces of men are gathering, or really the forces of Rohan are gathering, uh, Aragorn, the heir of the throne of men, was leaving. He's getting on his horse 
and he was leaving to enter into the mountain to find a, an, an army to assist in the battle. But Eowyn, the niece of King Theoden, runs up to him and she says, why are you doing this? The battle lies to the east. You can't leave on the eve of battle. You cannot abandon your men. And what she was communicating is that when the men experienced the presence of the king, they had an expectation for victory. They expected to win because the king was there. And if he leaves, they have no expectation for victory. And that expectation gives them hope. It strengthens them for the battle ahead. Friends, life with God in the sanctuary, life with God in worship, experiences the presence of Jesus among us, and it's an exercise in expectation. Knowing that his victory is sure, we have hope, hope to press on into the difficulties of our weeks, communing with God in the various endeavors of our life, and it's that future, that future and final victory of the king that we look to expectantly every Sunday. We don't just reflect on the past. We also expect a future, a glorious future, when the king returns and he makes all sad things come untrue. And it's that final spiritual exercise of worship that the psalmist gives himself to expectation. Let's go back to uh, my sophomore year of college. I continued to throw myself into Christian activities, thinking that I could placate my desires, but none of those activities ever quenched my thirst. It never quenched my hunger. So one day I mustered up the courage to, uh, to tell my college pastor at the, the church I was attending what was going on in my life. Uh, and he was gracious Andy was, uh, was gracious and understanding, and he began to meet with me every Friday morning just to discuss what was going on in my life. And, uh, and I would share my confusion, and share my confusion about God's distance, this experienced distance. I would share my frustration at God that he was so distant, even though I was working so hard for him. And Andy would listen intently. He'd listen compassionately, and he'd occasionally offer a few nuggets of wisdom here and there. Until after a number of weeks of listening to my college angst, uh, I'm sure he probably got frustrated with me whining. Uh, and so he finally looked at me and said, John, you must think an awful lot of yourself by working this hard to please God. I was like, oh, well, thanks, Andy. Keep going. This is great. You must think an awful lot of yourself to be working this hard to please God. You don't seem to understand that God doesn't need your work. He wants you. And then he quoted the famous line from Augustine's Confessions, you have made us for yourself, O Lord, and our heart is restless until it rests in you. And something clicked that day and something I continue to struggle with every day of my life, that soul satisfaction is not found in activity for God, but it's found in a life with God, a life of worship. And you have, you have access to that life 
through Jesus and in worship. So take up those exercises of praise, reflection, and expectation, and find your soul satisfied with fat and rich food in the steadfast love of God, which is better than life. Let's pray.